Jim Wilson pulled up to his farmhouse in Lockerbie, Scotland on the morning of December 22, 1988, exhausted. Pan Am Flight 103 had crashed into the city the night before, and Wilson had been up all night sifting through wreckage, trying to locate survivors. Now he just wanted to rest. But when he reached his property, he realized rest wouldn't be possible just yet. His fields were covered with debris from the crash. Wilson walked around and surveyed the damage, but it was too much for him to handle right then. He needed to lay down first. He turned to walk back to the house, but tripped over something in the grass, a suitcase. It looked like the lock had busted open. Wilson couldn't help himself. He bent down and peered inside. It was filled with men's clothing. Wilson sighed as he thought about the bag's owner. Curious, he picked up one of the t-shirts to get a closer look. Then he noticed something peeking out from below the clothes. He pushed aside a layer of garments and gasped. There were several packages filled with a white substance. Wilson didn't know it then, but he may have just uncovered a clue that could expose a secret CIA drug smuggling operation. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Pan Am Flight 103. In 1988, a bomb went off on the U.S.-bound plane as it passed over Lockerbie, Scotland. The explosion killed all 259 passengers in the sky that day and 11 Lockerbie residents below. Within days, investigators declared the incident a terrorist attack. Last time, we explored the aftermath of the crash and the ensuing international investigation. U.S. and Scottish authorities determined that Libya was behind the attack and arrested two of its citizens. This time, we'll cover three conspiracy theories related to the Pan Am bombing. Some people believe that Libya wasn't actually responsible for the attack. They were just framed by the U.S. Others say the plane was destroyed to silence two CIA operatives. Still, some theorists claim that Iran worked with an international terrorist organization to orchestrate the bombing. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. After Pan Am Flight 103 exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, the United States scrambled to identify a country or group that would want to attack a plane full of Americans. Their investigation led them to Libya. American officials believed Libyan revolutionary and political leader Muammar Gaddafi ordered two operatives to carry out the attack. Years later, Gaddafi claimed responsibility for the bombing. However, some theorists still believe he only admitted to the attack to avoid the U.S. placing any more economic sanctions on his country. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Libya wasn't behind the bombing. Gaddafi was framed by the U.S. to further their own political interests. Before we get into how Libya might have been framed, we need to explore why the U.S. government might have wanted to tarnish their leader's reputation. When Muammar Gaddafi took power in Libya in 1969, he dreamed of uniting Libya with other Arab countries and eliminating Western influence. One of the ways he sought to accomplish this goal was to nationalize oil production and distribution. This would mean that all oil companies operating in Libya would be under state control, including those previously owned by American corporations. The U.S. saw this move as a threat to their interests in the region. Soon, tensions between the two countries escalated. Turns out, Gaddafi had been funding and sponsoring terrorist groups targeting Western countries, including the U.S. In 1979, Libyans attacked the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli, and in response, the U.S. withdrew its ambassadors from the country and publicly declared Libya a state sponsor of terrorism. The statement didn't appear to move Libyan officials in any way. But two years later, Gaddafi's men fired at two American planes they claimed flew through Libyan airspace. Meanwhile, U.S. intelligence agents discovered something even more concerning. Gaddafi had allegedly tried to take hits out on U.S. officials, including President Reagan. Although no assassinations were carried out, many believed Libya posed a clear and present threat, and not just to the United States. In December 1985, terrorists bombed two airports in Rome and Vienna. It was suspected that Libya was behind the attack. When word reached the States, President Reagan decided enough was enough. A month later, he halted economic and commercial relations with Libya. Relations only worsened from there. 
On April 5, 1986, a bomb went off in a Berlin nightclub that was popular with U.S. soldiers stationed in the area. The explosion killed three people, including two Americans, and injured over 200 others. After the attack, American intelligence reported that they intercepted and decoded multiple communications from before and after the bombing. They were allegedly sent from the Libyan city of Tripoli to their agents in East Berlin. And apparently, the message sent after the bombing called the mission a, quote, great success. When U.S. intelligence heard about the messages, they connected them to the nightclub attack, and Reagan's response was swift. He ordered the Air Force to bomb Tripoli and Benghazi. One of the missiles destroyed Gaddafi's home and killed his daughter. Two and a half years later, the Pan Am Flight 103 bombing claimed 190 American lives. When the U.S. discovered that Libya might have been involved in the attack, the pieces started to fall together. For U.S. officials, after their own attack and the death of Gaddafi's daughter, it seemed like a clear act of retaliation. In 1991, three years after the Pan Am flight went down, the U.S. Department of Justice indicted two Libyan men in connection with the explosion. About a decade later, a Scottish court reached a split verdict. Lamin Khalifa Fahima was found innocent. Abdel Basit Ali al-Megrahi, guilty. But in the years after the ruling, several legal experts have come forward to challenge the court's decision. One of the key pieces of evidence presented during the trial was a circuit board discovered in the Lockerbie Fields. Investigators learned it was created by a Swiss electronics company called Mebo. Prosecutors claim that in an interview with Scottish investigators, Mebo co-owner Edwin Bollier said he had sold the same devices to the Libyan military and named McGrahi as one of their customers. But it later came to light that that may not have been the whole truth. According to Bollier, when investigators showed him the device in question, it was just a blurry picture of the circuit board. He gave them a soft confirmation that he recognized the device as his own, then asked to see the physical fragments before providing a definitive answer. But authorities didn't show him the physical evidence until 1998, 10 years after the bombing. When he finally did see fragments of the device, Bullier noticed something was off. The circuit boards he once sold to the Libyans were green. This one was brown. He told the authorities about the inconsistency, implying that his original statement may not have been accurate, but nothing came of it. During the trial three years later, acting as a defense witness, Bullier expressed even more doubt. He said the pieces looked like they'd been burnt or carbonized, perhaps as if someone wanted to give them the appearance of being in an explosion. Then, Bollier made a bombshell confession. In front of the jury, he claimed he'd been coerced into providing a false accusation all those years earlier. He told the court that in 1988, a man ordered him to write a letter to the CIA explaining that Gaddafi was behind the attack. And Bollier said the specific allegations in the letter were completely made up. 
Instead of probing Bollier further in their cross-examination, the prosecution rejected his statements and continued on with the trial. These new allegations didn't help their case. In their mind, he'd sold the timer to McGrahi, and that was that. But years later, another Mebo employee came forward with an eerily similar story. Long after the trial, Mebo chief technician Ulrich Lumpert filed an affidavit in which he admitted he had secretly provided evidence to the police. According to Lumpert, a Swiss detective approached him in 1989 and asked for a prototype of Mebo's circuit board. He handed it over. This was almost a full year before investigators even knew about a link between the device and McGrahi, and also a year before they spoke to Bollier. Based on this information, some theorists have suggested the circuit board investigators found in Lockerbie was not tied to Libya. They believe it's possible. Officials instead planted the device they got from Lumpert amongst the debris and pretended to discover it at the scene. Then, they used it to find a tenuous connection between Libyan agents and the attack. The circuit board seems suspicious, but some think the most questionable piece of evidence was actually a key witness, Tony Gauci. Gauchi owned the Maltese store where McGrahi is said to have purchased the clothing used to pad the bomb. His testimony was one of the primary reasons McGrahi was convicted. On the stand, Gauchi said McGrahi visited his shop on December 7th. However, Gauchi hadn't always been so sure about that date. In a previous statement, Gauchi mentioned that the sale of the clothing occurred a few weeks before Christmas, on a day when he was alone in the shop. His brother, who typically helped him, had left that afternoon to watch a soccer game. It was apparently also raining. With this information, authorities worked backwards, looking at soccer game schedules within this time frame. And soon they identified two possible dates— November 23rd and December 7th. The prosecution then needed to connect McGrahi to the clothes used to pad the bomb to make their case. And it's been suggested that they might have fudged the dates to do so. Airline records show that McGrahi wasn't in Malta on November 23rd, but he was there by December 7th, a day it didn't rain, but the same day that Gauchi ended up using in his testimony. These inconsistencies are concerning, but they aren't even the most troubling part of Gauchi's role in the case. Coming up, a money trail connects Gauchi and the CIA. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results. 
and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. One of the key witnesses in the trial against Libyan operative Abdel Basset Ali al-Magrahi was Tony Gauchi. Items from Gauchi's store were used to pad the bomb used to take down Pan Am Flight 103. According to Gauchi, McGrawhee had visited his store two weeks before the tragedy on December 7, 1988. When investigators came to Gauchi's shop searching for the culprit behind the Pan Am bombing, he told them about McGrawhee. He described the man in detail and said he looked Libyan but it's possible Gauchi wasn't being totally honest. According to a Scottish law review panel, Gauchi saw a picture of McGrawhee in a magazine just days before he spoke to investigators and then identified him in a police lineup. Some theorists believe he only knew what McGrawhee looked like because of the photo, not because McGrawhee was ever in his store. The question became, What reason would Gauchi have to lie under oath? But no one had a feasible answer. Until 2009. That year, journalists discovered the U.S. Department of Justice was asked to pay Gauchi $2 million to testify during the trial. For reference, in 2018, non-expert witnesses were usually paid around $40 a day in the U.S., When this story hit the press, some started to wonder if the store owner had been bribed to testify against Libya. With that much money padding his pockets, he had plenty of motivation to say whatever U.S. authorities wanted him to. So where does that leave us with conspiracy theory number one? There's compelling evidence to suggest that Libya may not have been behind the Pan Am bombing. Lumpert swore that officers asked him for a circuit board prototype a year before investigators visited the company. Plus, Bollier claimed he was coerced into saying Gaddafi was responsible for the attack. Those are fair points. But there was a clear link between Mebo and Libya. To me, the weakest connection in the case was Tony Gauchi. He couldn't remember the exact day he saw McGrahi, and he asked to be paid $2 million for his testimony. That's suspect. Exactly. Maybe the U.S. did pay him off. After all, relations between the U.S. and Libya had been fraught. Making Gaddafi look like a villain on the world stage would have benefited them politically. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I'm going to give this theory a 6. 
All that may be true, but Gaddafi came forward in 2003 and publicly stated that Libya was responsible for the attack. For that reason alone, I have to go a bit lower and give this theory a four. Even if we accept that Libya bombed Pan Am Flight 103 to get revenge on the U.S., it doesn't explain another strange coincidence about that day. There were two American CIA agents on the plane, and they were on their way to expose a secret drug smuggling operation. This brings us to our second conspiracy theory. Pan Am Flight 103 was taken down to silence two American operatives. Throughout the 1980s, an Iranian-backed terrorist group abducted foreign nationals in Lebanon, including Americans. Their reasons included using the hostages as bargaining chips to make political and financial deals with the United States. The CIA was tasked with rectifying the situation, and they knew the perfect guy to lead their operation. Agent Charles McKee finished top of his class in special intelligence training and spoke fluent Arabic. More importantly, though, he wanted to help. So the agency sent McKee to Lebanon to get started. There, he worked closely with the CIA's deputy station chief in Beirut, Matthew Gannon. The two of them hoped to devise a rescue plan. But it turned out they weren't the only agents who worked on the mission. Korea, spelled C-O-R-E-A, was allegedly an operation carried out by the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, stationed in Germany. Apparently, they didn't abide by typical agency rules or by international law. According to former Defense Intelligence Agency informant Lester Coleman, Korea members trafficked drugs and weapons across country lines to gain access to terrorist organizations. In doing so, they befriended known criminals like Syrian drug smuggler Manzer al-Qassar. Qassar held deep ties with the Syrian government. His brother-in-law was the chief of Syrian intelligence, and his wife was related to the country's president. The international drug dealer apparently liked to work every side— the Americans, the Syrians, and even terrorist organizations. Anything to help him get ahead. According to Kassar, in 1986, he helped free a group of French hostages being held by the Iranian-backed terrorists. His actions supposedly attracted the attention of Korea. According to Time magazine, the group contacted Kassar. They needed access to the Iranian-backed terrorists who had kidnapped the American hostages. Kassar agreed to help them, but only if they gave him the green light to continue running his drug-smuggling routes in America. Coria agreed. But Coria wasn't the only group with knowledge about Kassar. Another group in the DEA was already aware of Kassar's operations in the U.S. They had been monitoring his heroin shipments from Lebanon into Detroit, Los Angeles, and Houston. Nevertheless, Coria agreed to allow Kassar to transport heroin from the Frankfurt airport to the U.S. in exchange for helping them locate and release U.S. hostages. However, it seems some U.S. intelligence agents were not looped into this plan. Among those who were apparently kept out of the know were McKee and Gannon. 
And when they found out about Coria's connection to Kassar sometime in 1988, they were appalled. They couldn't believe agents for Operation Coria were working with someone tied to known terrorist organizations. McKee and Gannon didn't trust Kassar. For all they knew, he could turn on Coria and jeopardize the entire hostage rescue that McKee and Gannon had been planning. So, McKee picked up the phone and called CIA headquarters in Virginia. He confronted his supervisor and demanded that Coria's operations be shut down immediately. McKee's supervisor dismissed his demands, but McKee wasn't the type to stand down. If the CIA wasn't going to stop Coria, he and Gannon would take matters into their own hands. They came up with a plan to fly back to the U.S. and expose Coria. Since they were stationed in Beirut at the time, they booked a connecting flight out of London. Their following flight to the U.S. was on Pan Am Flight 103. To keep their all-important trip a secret, neither Gannon nor McKee informed their superiors about their travel plans. In fact, the only person McKee told was his mother. With the wheels set in motion, the men got to packing. McKee took the maps that led to the hostages and photographs of their secret locations. He also brought along the $500,000 he and Gannon had originally been given for the mission. Then they hurried to the airport, having no idea they were being tracked. According to Time magazine, there might have been a double agent in the CIA. Lester Coleman told the magazine that an agent named David Lovejoy secretly worked for Iranian operatives putting together arms deals during his tenure with the CIA. According to Coleman, Lovejoy somehow caught wind of McKee and Gannon's plan. And he feared that if the men blew the whistle on Coria's operation with Gassar, it would jeopardize their whole operation. The implication was that Lovejoy's allies were somehow connected to the terrorists holding the Americans hostage. Coleman alleged that Lovejoy may have told his Iranian men about McKee and Gannon. Then, to stop the agents from interfering in the hostage situation, the Iranians smuggled a bomb onto their plane. However, Coleman was not the most reliable source. New York Magazine reported that he provided time with a picture of David Lovejoy, but it was later determined that the person in the photo was actually named Michael Schaefer. He was a cameraman for the Christian Broadcasting Network, a media television network and production company. Shortly after Time published Coleman's piece, Schaefer accused the magazine of defamation of character and sued for $26 million. In 1997, Coleman pleaded guilty to perjury and admitted his story about Lovejoy had been a lie. Time magazine retracted the article and apologized to Schaefer. Still, even though Coleman admitted his story was made up, there are certain pieces of evidence that may point to a wider conspiracy. It's possible the DEA tried to cover their tracks and keep their drug smuggling operation a secret after the Pan Am bombing. According to Scottish radio reporter David Johnston, agency operatives flew into Lockerbie shortly after the attack. They located McKee's suitcase, along with the $500,000 and his secret maps. 
But instead of giving the items to investigators on the scene, they seized them. The agents allegedly returned a few days later with McKee's bag, which was now empty and placed it in the same spot they'd found it, as if the DEA had never touched it. There were other suspicious details as well. Lockerbie resident Jim Wilson found a briefcase in his yard that contained several packages filled with a white, powdery substance. Wilson claimed to have called the local police, and he said for some reason one of the officials that showed up was American. According to him, they seemed angry that they'd missed this evidence in their search. The agents allegedly took the suitcase and assured Wilson that they would follow up with him later on. But he says he never saw them again. Some theorists have suggested Wilson stumbled upon one of Kassar's secret drug runs. They believe the CIA may have confiscated the drugs to hide the truth about Coria, the DEA, and the hostages. But to this day, officials denied ever recovering hard drugs from the crash site. It's concerning that two CIA agents lost their lives in the explosion, especially if they knew something they shouldn't have. But this theory has a number of holes. For one, Coleman admitted to lying about Lovejoy and the weapons smuggling operation. Without that, the idea that the Iranians bombed Pan Am Flight 103 to silence McKee and Gannon falls apart. For that reason, I'm going to give this theory a 1 out of 10. I agree, and while it's possible the DEA was working with Kassar, we're not even sure the Coria unit existed. There aren't any public records to confirm or deny existing claims. Still, I'm inclined to believe there was some kind of government cover-up going on, so I'm going to give this theory a three. Okay, so if Pan Am Flight 103 wasn't taken down to silence two CIA operatives, then why was it targeted? Apart from the official explanation, theorists believe the attack was meant to send a message to the United States a message that came from more than just one country. Coming up, the conspiracy against the United States. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Now, back to the story. After Pan Am Flight 103 went down in Lockerbie, Scotland, authorities compiled a list of 1,200 potential suspects. Eventually, they whittled it down to the two Libyan men they arrested, one of whom was found guilty. But maybe investigators moved too fast and were looking in the wrong direction. Perhaps there was a much larger conspiracy at play. 
Which brings us to our third and final conspiracy theory. Iran planned the Pan Am bombing with the help of an international terrorist organization. In 1988, Iran was at the tail end of its eight-year-long war with Iraq. Although the inciting conflict had nothing to do with the U.S., there was oil at stake, a lot of it. And because America imported much of that oil, U.S. officials felt they needed to position themselves to intervene if necessary. So they stationed the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf. In doing so, the U.S. inserted itself into the war. Almost immediately, American naval ships fell into several skirmishes with Iranian vessels. And before long, the situation turned deadly. On July 3rd of that year, an Iranian commercial plane flew over the Strait of Hormuz, right by the Persian Gulf. 290 civilians, 238 of them Iranian, were on the flight on their way to Dubai. The U.S. Navy spotted the plane from below. Tensions were high, and the Navy expected to be attacked by an Iranian fighter jet at any minute. They weren't sure if this was a fighter jet or not, so they attempted to contact the plane's pilot. No one answered. So the naval commander instructed his men to fire. The missiles damaged the plane completely and brought it crashing down into the water. All of the passengers and crew died. The tragedy shook Iran. The country went into mourning. The U.S. had killed hundreds of their civilians unprovoked. Following the incident, U.S. officials said they regretted their actions, but leaders never formally apologized. To Iran, this indicated a lack of remorse. In response, Iran's supreme leader, Rahul Khamenei, publicly declared war against the United States. According to political scientist Trina Vargo, he vowed the skies would, quote, rain blood. He allegedly contacted Ahmed Jibril, the head of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or PFLP, a terrorist organization based in Syria. Khomeini wanted to hire the PFLP to attack the U.S. There was just one condition. The plot had to directly mirror what the U.S. Navy had done to Iran. This is where the story gets murky. Much of the next part of this theory comes from a report filed by Juval Aviv, who claims he was a former Mossad agent, which is Israel's CIA equivalent. Allegedly, the Mossad had some kind of connection to a drug smuggling operation going on between Iranian terrorist groups and the CIA. So it's possible that much of Aviv's report was based on information he received from his supposed former Mossad colleagues. Now for the report itself. In 1989, Pan Am was being sued for negligence by family members of passengers who were on Flight 103. At the time, Aviv worked for Interfor, a New York-based agency he founded specializing in corporate intelligence and investigations. Pan Am hired Aviv to investigate the bombing. His report showed that Pan Am wasn't at fault for the disaster, but his reasoning went far beyond mechanics and security. 
He alleged the bombing was actually part of a cover operation between Iran and Ahmed Jabril, the head of the PFLP. According to Aviv, Jabril was happy to work with Khomeini to plan an attack on the U.S., and he ultimately came up with the idea for PFLP to bomb a flight full of Americans. Jabril just needed to choose a flight to target and figure out how to get an explosive on board. Jabril had someone in mind that might be able to help, someone with ties to Syrian intelligence, Monzer al-Qasar. That's right, the same drug smuggler with DEA connections that we spoke about earlier. Jabril apparently knew Kassar ran a lucrative smuggling operation out of the Frankfurt airport. He hoped he'd be willing to help the PFLP carry out their mission. So, according to Aviv's report, in the fall of 1988, Jabril invited Kassar to dinner in Paris. There, he asked him if the PFLP could use his smuggling route to ship weapons and other equipment to the U.S., he didn't elaborate and didn't say anything about a bomb. Kassar agreed. He didn't know what the PFLP was planning, but he was willing to help the Palestinian cause. He said the group could use his route and his men. While Kassar was in charge of the logistics of his smuggling operation, 20-year-old Khalid Jafar was supposedly the one who handled the merchandise. He was tasked with getting the goods onto the plane and then delivering them to their final location in the United States. Kassar told Jabril that Jafar could do the same. Jabril met with Jafar and asked the 20-year-old to make a private drug run. Jabril explained that on the day of the operation, PFLP operatives would hand him a bag with drugs. Then, all he'd have to do was deliver it to the U.S. Jafar agreed. But before their plan got underway, there was a problem. In October 1988, German police raided a PFLP cell near Frankfurt. They discovered the group had placed a bomb inside a radio cassette player. Clearly, they were planning some kind of an attack. Then, three weeks before the attack, a Mossad agent received a secret communication about an upcoming hit on an American airliner. The operative apparently warned the German police about the possible threat. In response, the Frankfurt airport added security around all flights to the U.S. Kassar noticed what was going on at the airport and put two and two together. He was already feeling wary about Jibril, but now it was clear Some of Kassar's informants had uncovered Jibril's true plan to bomb a flight. This was bad news for Kassar. If there was a disaster on his Pan Am route, it would destroy his operation. So, to protect himself and his business, he sent a tip to the German police. He told them an American flight from Frankfurt Airport was going to be bombed in the next few days. When the police heard this, They increased their airport presence and alerted the CIA. But according to Aviv's report, the CIA didn't instruct any of their agents to monitor the airport. They thought the German surveillance would pick up everything. Aviv claimed the CIA also learned something else from Kassar. Agents Charles McKee and Matthew Gannon planned to travel back to the U.S. to expose the Korea unit. If they made it back they could bring down the entire hostage rescue. 
The day before the attack, an undercover Mossad agent once again told the German police about a forthcoming attack. The operative even specified that it would happen on Pan Am Flight 103. The German police reached out to the CIA and reiterated their concerns. But apparently, for whatever reason, the CIA never responded. The day finally came on December 21st. PFLP members pulled up to the Frankfurt airport in a black Mercedes and handed a brown suitcase to Jafar. As Jafar carried the bag through the terminal, German officers watched him carefully. They knew the CIA allowed drugs to flow through the airport for a secret operation, but this suitcase was different. It wasn't the usual color or make. To be safe, a German officer called the local CIA unit and informed them about the altered bag. Local agents then contacted the U.S. headquarters. According to Aviv, the CIA higher-ups gave their operatives clear instructions. Let the bag go. Do not stop it. So, they didn't. The rest of the night went down exactly as the PFLP planned. Jafar boarded Pan Am Flight 103 with what he thought were drugs. Then the bomb exploded over Lockerbie, killing him, the agents, and everyone aboard. For Iran's supreme leader, it was the perfect revenge. A reminder, the majority of this account comes from Juval Aviv's report. The Justice Department even led their own investigation into the theory. And in 1990, they revealed to have found no evidence to support it. The U.S. government also attacked Aviv's credibility. They claimed he never worked for the Mossad. They also said he lied about his background and credentials. Aviv vehemently refuted these claims and provided multiple FBI memos sent to him in the 1980s as proof of his work. For some, the question of what is true and what's not here remains open-ended. Perhaps the government wanted to cover up its complicity in the attack. It wouldn't have looked good if it came out that they knew about a potential threat and did nothing. But if that's the case, why didn't the U.S. indict Iran or the PFLP? Maybe the CIA didn't want to antagonize the Iran-based terrorist group that was holding Americans hostage in Beirut, so they accused Libya instead. Just four days after the U.S. announced the indictment of two Libyan suspects, the Iranian-backed terrorists released two people. A month after that, they freed the last U.S. hostage. To some, it seemed like Iran may have been making good on some backdoor deal with the United States no one had heard about. In 2014, that theory seemed to be confirmed when a former Iranian spy claimed the Supreme Leader ordered the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. The agent confirmed it was revenge for the U.S. Navy's attack five months earlier. There seems to be a lot of direct and circumstantial evidence to suggest that Iran hired the PFLP to attack Pan Am Flight 103. There were reports from the Mossad and even Iranian defectors. And remember, Duval Aviv claimed to get all of his information from intelligence sources. But then again, the U.S. government led their own investigation and found no evidence of Aviv's theory and his credibility. After all, Pan Am paid Aviv to put together a report on the attack. 
he might have felt pressured to blame someone besides the airline. I see your point, but the U.S. also had some reason to discredit Aviv. He alleged that the CIA ignored the threat of the bombing, despite multiple warnings from sources. Personally, I find the case for Iran possible, so I'm going to give this theory a 5 out of 10. That's fair. The Iran theory certainly makes a lot of sense. The country wanted revenge for what they saw as a tragedy, so they hired a terrorist group to carry out an attack. Still, we don't have irrefutable evidence. For that reason, I'm going to give this theory a 4 out of 10. Theorists believe we may never know for sure who killed those 270 people on December 21st, 1988. Libya officially took the blame, but some find that there's reason to doubt just how culpable they really were. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.